Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Andrea Ramsey. A native of Arkansas, Andrea has held positions in music education and conducting at The Ohio State University and the University of Colorado Boulder, respectively. She has numerous works published through traditional publishers, as well as on musicspoke.com. She regularly conducts regional and state honor choirs and has enjoyed residency collaborations with many ensembles, including the Allegro Choirs of Kansas City, Ithaca College, and the Crescent City Choral Festival in New Orleans. Andrea Ramsey, welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's travel back to where your musical journey began. So when did you first start to music? <laughs> Was it... <laughs> Uh, piano lessons. What, what were you doing at first? Yeah, I mean, I all, my family. We always sang as a family for fun, but neither of my parents were trained. And but my mom had always wanted to be a pianist uh, or to take piano lessons. But she was the oldest of eight, and they were a farm family, and they were like, "We don't have money for this, or whatever." But she sacrificed and made sure that my brother and I had music lessons. And so for me, my journey began as a very bad piano student. <laughs> um, I was I was not particularly great I'm still not a pianist um but we had on and off lessons I had on and off lessons with whoever the cheapest church lady was in town that was teaching and and uh and I think the early seats for composition were in those those times because I I didn't want to practice I just wanted to make up new sounds at the piano or add things to the song that I was working on um and so that was that was uh kind of how it started so did you always see yourself becoming a professional musician or when you were little, did you gr- dream of being something else when you grew up? Oh, I love music. I had love, I mean, it changed constantly. I think my earliest thing was I wanted to be an astronaut and then I learned uh-huh. you have to be good at math for that. <laughs> that was not a strong skill set for my, for me. So I, my desire, like I had a fantastic teacher when I moved into high school. Um, he was great. And, and I, I thought, I loved the choir and I loved singing. And I also knew my parents, both being blue collar, I said, you, you know, you have to get your education, but you have to get a scholarship because <laughs> so I was trying to figure out how that would work. And I and I was just sort of going into music ed, knowing I loved choir and hoping that I had the skills to do it uh, because I knew I could get a scholarship, you know, and so that's to sing. And so that's that's what I did. And thankfully I really loved it and and uh, and graduated. So <laughs> 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 That's the important point right there. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned a, a teacher in high school. Did you have other teachers or that teacher in particular that sort of pushed you into music that were formative in your music education? Yeah, my high school choir director, Gary Morris, um, he was wonderful. I mean, he was the first teacher that I thought really made me think about syllabic stress and how to shape a phrase. And and he, he gave us varied and challenging repertoire. We did, you know, Renaissance things and Baroque things and contemporary bizarre things. And, you know, and I just, I love that we got to explore so much. And then I went to college at Arkansas Tech University and my teachers there, you know, I, I'm, a, I mean, I'm a product of public education. I went to public schools, I went to public universities and and I love them. And this was a small state school that's doing great things still. 
but I, I love the energy that they could pour into me because I took a, my first piece that I wrote to the choir director and said, you know, what do you think about this? And he said, if you revise this one section, we'll, we'll do this in the fall. And so I did and got to work. And my voice teacher, Holly Ruth Gale, who was also like incredibly, she's still like my second mom. I still go visit her. Uh, when it came time for my senior recital, she, she saw this ability. She said, Andrea, you're going to write your English set. So, you know, she assigned all my rep for the languages, but she let me, and then my little applied composition teacher said, well, if we're going to do this, if you're going to write this, then we're going to teach you about some instruments because he was a percussionist. And a, so he made sure that I, I was writing her instruments as well as voices, even though it was kind of chamber-ish. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's great. And then later on, really influential mentors at Michigan State, where I finished my doctorate in David Rail and John Reed and, and Sandra Snow, who, who really reshaped my world. Sure. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, you also had a couple positions at universities. Uh, but at some point, you decided to pursue composing full time. So yeah. what led to that decision? Oh, a lot of things. Um, and it was not easy. I love teaching. Um, and I and I knew teaching always had to be a part i think if i just was only composing it was going to be um really tough but the guest conducting things had grown enough that i thought maybe this can be my teaching and i can still get enough of a teaching fix through mm -hmm. this and um but really it came it came down to wanting wanting to have a life beyond work <laughs> <laughs> Because I was, you know, the university, uh, the demands of my time there in terms of, of course load, which had increased, you know, uh, from the time I got there. And then also um, just committee work, if we're real, about how many committees women serve on versus men in academia. Uh, and I, a lot of that's representation, but women, our women and our minority colleagues are often asked to serve a lot more. And uh, that's extra labor. And so those things, but then also they wanted me to do outreach. So I was doing traveling and gigs and was great, but I was also in love with composing and trying to navigate at least a few incoming commissions each year. And so I just kind of felt like I was on this hamster wheel and, and I wanted a life. And, but I wasn't really sure it was feasible or that it was smart because I was in this great job and I had wonderful students. And I, anyway, so fast forward to, I was in Iowa and I crossed paths with Jake Rinstead, who was there also, I don't know if he was presenting or, or what, but we had dinner and we're talking and, um, and I said, tell me about this, you know, you're doing this full time and he's younger than I am. And he said, uh, he looks kind of confused and he says, would you want to do this? And I said, maybe like, what do you know? And he said, you could so do this. Like, what are you scared of? And I said, what if people quit buying my music, you know, and he said, <laughs> they quit commissioning me. And he said, well, do you have savings? And yeah. And he said, well, if they got low, could you get another job? And I said, probably. And he said, well, what else are you scared of? And he just sort of shot down so many of these things that, that we are terrified about. And we sort of put ourselves on tracks and continue down those paths. And I went home and sort of crunched numbers. And I thought, gosh, I could take a lot more commissions if I wasn't also teaching. And, you know, and it seemed viable. And, uh, and I really weighed it. And, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to, I think I'm going to do this. And so, <laughs> so I did. And now here we are four years later and it's going great. So that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I'd love to get to that point. I, I was about to say, I'd love to get to that point with my compositions. 
but at the same time, I, I love teaching also. So it's, it's hard to, I, this hard year to know. This year so hard because uh, the pandemic has made me sort of realize what's it like, what is it like if you're only a composer, right? Because then it's very isolating. So I really miss the teaching. <laughs> <laughs> now, the majority of your, compo your compositions are for choirs uh, mm -hmm. of all ages and voicings. Uh, so what is it about choral music that keeps you invested in composing for voices? Oh, I mean, I love it because I was raised in it, but I also think um, we have words, right? We have text, you know, so there's, there's could be story or there could be poetry. And, um, and so I love that. And I taught at all age levels and I, and all age levels want to sing and, and uh, have their own fun quirks. And so it's, uh -huh. it's um, yeah, I just love it. I think, you know, uh, Kurt Connect is the first, who's a composer in Kansas City who who keeps telling me he's like you need to do chamber music next like that should be and I and I and I think it would be fun to explore just writing for instruments at some point but uh but I think it will be just that it'll be sort of fun dabbling and uh -huh. choral, choral music is where my heart is um, yeah I, I feel the same the the same about my music I I keep coming back to choral music even if I explore other things that that seems to be my my home base I love yeah. the text. Yeah. 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 So I was looking at your calendar online and I'm impressed with how many engagements you have listed on there. Uh, I'm sure many of those listed in 2020 were canceled yeah. because of the pandemic. Uh, so I'm wondering what have you been doing in the past year to keep yourself busy and sort of what does your upcoming year look like? Oh, so many things were canceled. I have airline vouchers for day. <laughs> but, uh, and I don't know if I can use them before they expire, but I'm trying. Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, I was really fortunate when it all, there were many times during this pandemic where I thought, how is this going to go? I mean, I think we all did. We were all sort of questioning like the viability of things. And um, I was really fortunate that I had steadily contracted work for commissions and, uh, and that one of the real silver linings that I didn't realize was, was going to happen is all of these choirs that moved online we're reaching out saying, can we do a Zoom Q&A? Can we talk about this piece with you? Can we, you know, which was great. Mm -hmm. And so I had all these people and I was sort of, because every budget's different, I was sort of saying, hey, listen, I'm doing these on a pay what's comfortable basis. And so, and it would vary sort of greatly what people would pay and that was fine. And, yeah. but, you know, I mean, that was really helpful income because obviously, you know, print music sales were down, ASCAP performance royalties had fallen off, <laughs> yeah. you know, because they weren't, we weren't having concerts so much uh, anymore. But um, I was also really lucky that my, right when lockdown happened was when I first started writing um, my suffrage cantata. So it, I had done a lot of research and sort of laying the groundwork of what I thought it would be and what texts I wanted to pull from. Um, but as soon as my first thing was, was, you know, shut down, I thought, I'm going to get going on this. And there was, you know, and so really from early March through August 1st, I was working on that major work. And then after that, I had some time between, you know, the end of that and my next commission that was due. So I collaborated with couple of friends who are conductors in Canada and uh, and wrote some miniatures in, in creative spaces for them that honestly, we thought that they would have a better shot at. And then things have flip-flopped in such bizarre ways that now they're sort of locked down and saying, we'll get to these eventually, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's all, it's all good, but, um, you know, things are coming back though, which that's really encouraging just 
just in the past couple of months, mm-hmm. um, invitations that, you know, some of the things that were canceled in 2020, they're rescheduling for 2022. And, and then uh, a couple of all state choirs have come in that are going to be in, are tentatively in person. And yeah. So you're just, everyone's sort of holding their breath and saying yes and crossing fingers. And, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's exciting. I think the first thing that I have is in September. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see. Well, I'll you cross know. my fingers for you. I hope, it, yeah, all, I hope yeah. it all works out. I know. I hope I just don't. I feel like I'm going to cry just the whole time. I'd be so excited to be a choir. <laughs> They're going to be like, why don't we hire her? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I, I I met with one of my choirs in a small hybrid group, most of them were Zooming. I had like six people in person and uh-huh. we just started a, a warm up. You know, I'm like, okay, let's do da, 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 whatever. And as soon as sound came out of their mouth, I was like, oh, my gosh. It's so beautiful. It's so moving. <laughs> yeah. So no. speaking of guest conducting, how did you get into that conducting circuit? What was your first gig? Oh, I think first was probably when I was teaching in Arkansas. It was probably just an all-region choir mm-hmm. uh, there, uh, probably at the junior high level. I can't remember exactly, but I know I did a couple of all-regions in Arkansas when I was teaching there. Um, and then the first time... And then I did a junior high all region, a junior high all state in Missouri. That was also a one day thing. And then the first time I had like a multi day all state thing, I was a doctoral student at Michigan State, and uh, Louisiana contacted me. And I guess they had done some of my music the year before, but um, they also saw that in my masters I had conduct uh, like my assignment was the KU Men's Glee Club, and they invited me to conduct their tenor bass all state choir, mm. which. Uh, I was, I was sort of wrecked about because I thought this is going to be amazing, but I'm so terrified. Like I never, <laughs> I never envisioned that the first time I did this would be with tenors and basses. And, uh, and I went to Dr. Snow, my mentor at the time and said, what, what are your thoughts? She said, I've never been asked to do a tenor bass choir before. <laughs> and I thought this, it was really cool. And like, since then, I think we're opening that door a bit more, uh, to women conductors, um, but it was, it, I mean, it was a blast. I had a great time uh, with those guys. So yeah, it's fun. That's fabulous. So if you were to take a sampling of your compositions from the past five years, you could go further back if you'd like. Uh, would a listener hear sort of a common thought or a connecting link in your music? Could someone listen to it and say, this is an Andrea Ramsey piece because of blank? Could yeah, Probably. I mean, I don't know. I think some some of the pieces, I know my ear, I mean, I guess all of us, we have our ears gravitate towards certain sounds that we like. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes we're really cognizant of that. And sometimes we may not be as cognizant of the specific things. So I would say probably in my works, you hear suspensions because I love those. You probably, I know that I make use of mixed meter or asymmetrical meter often um, for text reasons and also just to change up things because it's kind of fun and ostinato. And I really love melody. So, I mean, I'm sure there are common things um but I also um I also hope that it's not too easily pigeonholed because I really I, um variety is my favorite thing so honestly I'm always in I feel like a, a mimic sometimes like I just want to try on different sounds and different uh-huh. ideas and, and and play and yeah so okay well one last question before we take a break what is it that inspires you to be your best self what gets you into that spot Oh, I mean, it's sentimental, but it's so real. It's my parents. Um, Hmm. My, my 
my mother always said to me and to my brother, um, she, she said, my dreams will be fulfilled in you too. And, uh, and she, she gave us both so much. I mean, they, she was constant cheerleader, constant encourager, wanting me to have the things that she didn't, which isn't always the case. I mean, a lot of times parents are scared for their children to become more educated or to go on to other things and that they might lose them or they might not relate to them in the same way. Uh, my dad, similarly, he was a dreamer and he had a lot of wanderlust. He wanted to travel, but he didn't, you know, get to go as much. But I, I feel like I get to travel and sort of live some of those things that, that he wanted. And he would hum around the house and make up silly dad songs. And, <laughs> and uh, but just a really hard worker, never met a stranger, loved people, but also had a low threshold for um, people who were mean or, or overly arrogant. Um, and so, you know, both my parents are gone now, but um, I never, I don't feel like I ever quit trying to make them proud, you know, and, and I, because I know that anything I'm achieving right now is, is directly a result of the love that they had and, and the sacrifices that they made so that I could have an education and, and be a bad piano student, but have enough <laughs> piano to survive as a music ed major, you know, and move, and move through that. So, yeah, I think it's those, those that, that my parents inspire me to be my best self. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have a chance to listen to some of Andrea's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Andrea Ramsey. Let's begin today with Twain Song, which is a fun set of pieces based on quips and quotes of Mark Twain. So I won't read all of them, but a couple of the quotes included in the set are, never argue with stupid people. They'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. And a gentleman is someone who knows how to play the banjo, but doesn't. So did you pick these texts or did the commission inquire select them? A little bit of both. So I, I, I selected a short list of maybe 20 or so Twain quotes. And this is duly commissioned between a high school in Iowa and uh, San Jose State. And then I sent those conductors a Google Doc with those quotes and I had them, you know, mark which ones they most related to and the ones that overlapped. Then I looked and I was like, okay, how can I make sort of a meal out of this uh -huh. so that we have some variety and there are things that I like. And, and that's how we landed on the, the final ones that we use. So did they come to you first and say, we want you to use Mark Twain quotes or was that oh, sort of your yeah, idea? Sorry, or? I totally, I went to the very specifics of it. Oh, no, that's okay. It's so random. Well, um, Maybe 10 years ago, gosh, I can't believe it's been that long. I did a set for children's choir called Three Quotes by Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, little two-part things with piano that were cute for kids to sing. But he has such witticisms that are hilarious at other levels. So I posted on Facebook and I said, I kind of think I want to do a grown-up version of the Mark Twain quotes. And I had shared a few of the quotes that I had come across one of which I don't even think I used, but was something about, you know, so, or oh, I did use it. Suppose you were an idiot and suppose you are a member of Congress, but I repeat myself. And so I put like a few of these out and a handful of conductors were like, oh my gosh, this is great. But then two of them were like, I want to commission this. I want to commit. And they were both like, they, I mean, one was a really advanced high school choir and then the other was a university. And I was like, do you want to do this together? And then we can make it longer and you can, and yeah. So that, that was how it, it started was I just floated an idea out there. Um, that is really cool. All right, so we're going to listen to a few minutes of Twain's song uh, performed by Urbandale High School from Des Moines, Iowa. 
Next, let's go to Each Slow Dusk for SSAATTBB Acapella Choir. So for this piece, you use the text of Wilfred Owen's Anthem for a Doomed Youth. Mm -hmm. uh, the piece starts with an incessant driving beat, which carries through violent and evocative images until settling into a, a melancholy that sort of sustains the rest of the piece. I'd love to hear your thought processes as you worked on this piece. Yeah, um, well, Wilfred Owen, arguably um, one of the best poets of the World War I era um, and was killed in action. And so, so this is definitely tied to war, but I actually stumbled upon the poem shortly after the Parkland shooting. Mm -hmm. And I read that opening line, well, first of all, the title, Anthem for Doomed Youth, and then you read the opening line of what passing bells for these who die as cattle, only the monstrous anger of the gun, only the stuttering rifles rapid rattle. And I just, I, I was gripped and it was pretty heavy. Um, but I, but I thought, I think I want to set this. And I uh, had a high school teacher who was commissioning it at the time. And I, I reached out with the idea and I said, I will totally understand if you don't like this and you want to pass on it because this is a lot. But it's, when I read this, I was moved and I think it could be something. And uh, she said, let me talk this over with my students. I kind of think this could be something too. And then they had a really thoughtful discussion and came back and sort of, you know, if we're going to do this, we need to, you know, be in the right space. And they, they and so they said, let's do it. And, and uh, so we did, but I, I wanted to, um, you hear like through, it starts actually with bell tones. So these, and, and I keep bells moving in for the voice parts ish, uh, basically through the whole, peace until the lines of text that say no mockeries now for them nor prayers nor bells and at nor bells I, I strip that away and and we're and it's so I think it loses um well not lose, lose it but it, it gains a spaciousness and there's not this constant sense of movement anymore um and then we we move into the end of it with this idea of of an each slow dusk uh, a drawing down of blinds um which I don't know, I think it's, it's, there's so much drama in that text. And for me, it was one of the most, I don't know, trying to figure out how to keep those voices going. I mean, I just remember drawing little charts and the, the canon at the end that slowly comes down to one voice, uh, sort of mapping that and trying to figure out how to make it work. It was, it was just, I don't know, I was proud of it, but it's not performed a lot. And so, um, Thanks for letting me share it here. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I feel proud of it. Yeah. I'm curious. How did the how did the high school students respond to it? Well, when I conducted it um, in Memphis, it was um, very positive. I, I mean, I was I, they they really embraced the story and they they dove in wholeheartedly and and it, it was compelling enough that um, there's one place where. <laughs> I can't remember, if I, but I know it was me. Like I thought, oh no, I, I was ambiguous about my gesture and they came in a little early and I thought that this was, because I, I was so stirred by what they were doing. Um, so no, I, I, I was pleased with how they responded. That's fabulous. Well, we are going to listen to the All Southwest Regional Honor Choir in Memphis, Tennessee, performing Each Slow Dusk. Mm -hmm. 
Our third piece today is A Hive of Frightened Bees. 
This is a deeply emotional piece, uh, as in the middle of the piece, a narrator reads the names of schools where there have been mass shootings. Uh, can you talk about how you approach such a sensitive subject as you were writing? You know, this one sort of su surprised me because I, I had a student when I was at the University of Colorado who was doing her student teaching with Chris Malnu at Arvada, Arvada West High School. And she tagged me in Facebook on this post and he had shared a poem from one of his choir students who had written the poem in her class and uh, the, well, in her English class. And then she shared it with the choir because that school had been having threats in their bathroom uh, about a school shooting. And so they were all on edge and then the Parkland shooting happened. Mm -hmm. And so there was this, um, I mean, they were all processing things. And, and I said, if she's open to reshaping this a bit, because it wasn't written to be lyrics, you know, but I thought if I can just adjust some things, I think this could be really powerful. And she was, and so we did. And initially it was for treble chorus. And then I expanded it um, to SATB later. But I think that um, the thing I was drawn to was that, <laughs> I mean, I, I, for me, this is a humanity issue. I know that there's a lot of politics wrapped up into it when you talk about how to solve this, but the, this piece doesn't address that. It addresses, these are what students are feeling on a daily basis. This is what they're living with, the reality of, of, of what they're processing and having uh, to go through. And, and I think that that's an important thing for us to hear and know about. Yeah. All right, well, we are going to take a moment here. We're going to listen to the premiere of the SATB version uh, performed by the St. Olaf Chapel Choir with uh, my friend, uh, Tesfa Wandamagnehu conducting.
University of Texas, Austin, Texas. Columbine High School, Littleton, Colorado. Red Lake High School, Red Lake, Minnesota. Virginia Tech University, Blacksburg, Virginia. Oikos University, Oakland, California. College, Roseburg, Oregon. Northern Illinois University, DeKalb, Illinois. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, Parkland, Florida. Santa Fe High School, Santa Fe, Texas. STEM School, Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Lastly today, we are going to approach your major work, Suffrage Cantata, which you mentioned earlier in our interview here. Now, there is so much to say about this piece that it's difficult to even know where to start. I <laughs> learned so much about the suffrage movement that I didn't know before while I was listening to this piece. You know, I, of course, knew about Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but I didn't know about the silent sentinels or the privations these women suffered in jail. Uh, so can you just give us sort of a brief outline of the project and your own personal discoveries during its creation. I, I feel the same as you. Like, where do I start? Quick <laughs> outline. Uh, I, I, um, the work is five movements, and so, uh, and and sort of functions loosely as a, a musical palindrome. So you'll hear some similar musical content in movement one and movement five. Some similar music in movement two and movement four, and then movement three is its own kind of thing. And so the first movement is dealing with early women's rights leaders and the conditions that women were in at the start of this movement. Uh, the second movement is a really righteously indignant Susan B. Anthony. It's about 80% of her just being taped off and then about 20% <laughs> of her really inspiring parting words that she left to the movement because she didn't live, live to see her amendment pass. 
And uh, the third movement centers on Ida B. Wells Barnett, who to me was one of the, maybe the most compelling suffragists I discovered, uh, and a woman who just spoke truth to power her whole life. So we, we deal with Ida B. Wells Barnett and we deal with the 1913 Women's Suffrage Parade and her, um, her actions which integrated that parade uh, in a way that the, some of the parade leaders didn't want. And that's a whole other conversation about some of the, the overt racism and classism that was in, in, involved and wrapped up in the suffrage movement. Uh, movement four is focused on the silent sentinels who protested outside the White House, their imprisonment and the tortures that they endured there and ultimately their release. Uh, and the movement five is, is focused on uh, the passage uh, of, of, well, the, sorry, the passage has already happened on the ratification of the 19th Amendment and then uh, looking forward and, and realizing sort of what this amendment did and what this amendment didn't do. And it was still quite a long time for, for many women of color uh, before they enjoyed the same privileges. And so, um, yeah, that, that's a brief overview. Uh, for me, it was, you know, well over a year of research and traveled to DC and to Seneca Falls and Rochester and, and almost like a second dissertation, but more fun than the first. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did notice uh, in the sort of the front material that you had sent me as well. I was reading through that, and um, I was impressed with the the comment you made that you discovered that these these great women who were in, involved in this movement, you know, weren't perfect and had problems, and you know, had that sort of undertone of racism or sometimes overt racism in in what they were doing. Uh, how did that sort of shape how you were thinking about this? Well, I was naive at the outset and I thought I'll just only talk about the good suffragists and and I was it was when I was at the Belmont Paul Equality Monument which is uh it's amazing building in DC people should visit if they're there uh but I was getting ready to take a tour I'd arrived a little early and the tour guide was there and so I was fishing for info and I said you know I know some of the suffragists were racially problematic and she goes oh they were all racially problematic <laughs> and I thought Oh, okay. And so, and, and I did, I saw this tour. I saw women who were sentenced to six, seven years in prison, who, who endured um, hunger strikes and forced feedings and, and uh, you know, just really fought for this cause, but who, but who were flawed. And some of them, it, it was just, it was a, it was a, if, if being racist would expedite the cause, you know, if, if then though that was their issue. And then some of them, it was, they were really, um, you know, you have documents where they gave speeches and had racial slurs included and things like that. So I had to make decisions about who to include and who not to include. And so I, I did try to highlight those women that I felt um, to me were most compelling, but, and I was very intentional about bringing in women of color who were in the movement. Mm -hmm. And that provided, that presented its own challenges because, uh, you know, it, for every article I could find on Ida B. Wells Barnett or Mary Church Terrell or Nanny Helen Burroughs or any of these other women of color in the movement, there would be, you know, maybe 50 to 100 articles more uh, and information more about Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot and, and a lot of pressure I felt of just knowing that some people would be upset if I did include certain people or if I didn't include and, and also feeling sad. I really wish that I had gotten Lucy Stone into the cantata more as a character, but um, I did use some of her words, but yeah. Yeah, I, I really 
enjoyed the inclusion of those women of color, which I mm-hmm. I didn't know about during the yeah. uh, during my learning about the suffrage movement. So we are going to listen to some highlights from uh, the suffrage cantata. of the 24 United States, half were slave states. Of the two million enslaved, half were women. For those women not enslaved, voting, speaking in public, preaching in church, and a formal education were not permitted. United States versus Susan B. Anthony took place in June of 1873 and lasted two days with an all-white, all-male jury and a judge who had written his decision before any of the evidence was presented, it was hardly a fair trial. Susan had not been allowed to speak until the final day when the judge ordered her to stand and asked, has the prisoner anything to say why sentence shall not be pronounced? Yes, your ordered Susan B. Anthony to sit down, something he would have to do six separate times before she was finished. Taking on injustice was a lifelong pursuit for Ida. Even as a teacher in the South, she sued the railroad when they forcibly removed her from her car. A woman's place is a clean train car. I paid 30 cents for my ticket. When the conductor tried to put me in the smoking car, I told him, son, I won't go in it. And when he tried to move me, I bit his hand, bit hard enough, he had to get another man. And after the two of them slapped me in the smoke and squab, I sued the railroad and won five hundred dollars. Yes, white women need the ballot, but my Yes, the House and the Senate. Eight 
thousand women marching to take a stand for the right to vote afforded every other man. The woman needs a ballot far more than a petticoat. Standing tall, we are marching steady for the right to vote. From here, the amendment would need to be ratified by 36 states. Though public sentiment on suffrage was shifting, there was much work left to be done. The 19th Amendment was a 72-year struggle, but for women of color, the struggle would continue. Zikala Shah of Yankton Sioux Heritage fought for indigenous Americans to gain citizenship in 1924. Their right to vote, however, was decided state by state, with New Mexico and Arizona being the last in 1948. Chinese immigrants would vote in 1943, and for black women, repeatedly suppressed at the polls, the poll tax was ended in 1964, and the Voting Rights Act created in 1965. Voters with disabilities were given special protections in 1982. As Carrie Chapman Catt said, women have suffered agony of soul which you can never comprehend, that you and your daughters might inherit political freedom. That vote has been costly. Prize it. All right. Well, Andrea, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? <laughs> what am I working on now? No, I, <laughs> I'm trying to find oh, about five different texts for pieces that are due between now and, and August. So I have uh, an upcoming commission for an elementary uh, honor choir for the Southern Division of ACDA. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for that. And I'm looking for a tenor bass chorus text for East... Eastern, oh, I'm going to get the Eastern Tennessee State. I hope it's, it might be East Tennessee State. Um, I, and then I have, um, oh my gosh, there's a, a text I need to find for California's mixed all state choir. There's a text. So I really am in poetry hunting mode right now, I'm not actually putting notes on a page right now, Steve. I'm, a, I'm just, I'm just spending every day sort of digging through poems and brainstorming ideas uh, for some of those projects. Well, this episode doesn't actually air until August. So hopefully by then we'll have some of those <laughs> laid down. Oh, <that's> okay. <laughs> 
So uh, where could my listeners learn more about you? What's your website and social media handles? Oh, you can go to um, andrearamsey.com for my website, which needs to be updated, but I'm also sort of working on that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ramsey Andrea and uh, on Instagram at Andrea Ramsey Music. And I have a Facebook composer page as well. Excellent. And hey, listeners out there, make sure you also check out the Movable Dough merch that is available from our friends at tpublic.com. You can get the Movable Dough logo on a shirt, hoodie, mug, pillow, magnets, and much, much more. You can find the merch store through my website, sdcompose.com slash movable dough, or by visiting tpublic.com slash user slash sdcompose. Let your friends know that you are fans of movable dough. Well, Andrea, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thanks for having me. This is great. My guest today was composer Dr. Andrea Ramsey. If you do have recommendations for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Mm -hmm.